Becca, if you, if you please rise for the reading of this morning's scripture, Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, and Matthew 27, verses 20 through 23. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and colt and put them on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went before him and that which were following were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And then he entered Jerusalem. The whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two of you do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. Thank you very much. This is the word of God. You may be seated. For the past seven um, weeks, I was preaching through the book of Jonah. It wasn't my intention for the series to last as long as it did, but it, but it had, and it flows right into Holy Week. And this is very fitting because of what Jesus said about Jonah. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 41, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks, seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Over the last series, I've been talking about how the book of Jonah is a mirror, that we look a lot more like Jonah than we ever want to admit, but we are also loved more than we ever dared hope. I broke Jonah's attitude down in chapter 4 into three sections. I called them three mirrors for us. The mirror of injustice, that Jonah hated the Ninevites for more than them just being Ninevites because he saw injustice that was not going to be punished. Number two, the mirror of discomfort. Jonah's discomfort was God's discipline for him. And three, the mirror of mercy. For Holy Week, we are going to look through the passion through these lenses, through these mirrors. 
the mirrors of discomfort of Christ being disciplined by his father. I'm going to explain a very interesting verse in Hebrews for you. Um, Hebrews 5, 8, that said the son learned discipline through what the father, through what he had suffered. I'm going to explain that for you. And then also on Easter morning, the mirror of mercy. But today I first want to talk about the mirror of injustice. As Josh Song um, said, the song that he was playing, that there was this very similar people between Hosanna in the highest and crucify him. I wrote this on my Facebook a number of Good Fridays ago when I was doing, I was doing a, every, every Holy Week, every year, I do a bit of meditation. What I mean by that is I'm not going, mm, or shouting a mantra, trying to clear my mind, but I'm thinking deeply into the scriptures then deeply into myself and how that applies. And what about Holy Week? What about Good Friday? And this is what I wrote out of that. Good Friday is a special time of the year. It is a time where we remember the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a time of reflection and self-introspection. When I think of the trial of Jesus, I am always amazed that those who shouted, Hosanna in the highest, were also some of those who shouted, crucify him. It's a dark moment of insight into the fallen human soul. I think those who were there who did both did so because of righteous, a false righteous anger. Anger is heroin for the soul. It feels good. It feels like righteousness. And we lie to ourselves and tell and tell ourselves that our anger and righteousness is much is is so much like the crowd that day. We will even tell ourselves that God is angry at sin, which he absolutely is. So I'm being like God when I rail against a person made in the image of God. But what does the anger of God look like? There are many things it looks like, but it's rarely fast. Yet often we take umbrage at someone else without knowing all the facts or even considering mercy or understanding. The thought that I might be wrong doesn't even enter into our minds when we are filled with fire. We currently live in a society in which we can express our moral rage quickly and with others much like the mob who shouted for the blood of the King of Kings. In my life, I want to be more like the one who, who when nails were being driven into his hands and feet, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, rather than the one who is high on his own indignation that I can't see I am in the crowd shouting, crucify him. The crowds that day that were in Jerusalem as Jesus entered Jerusalem were there for a reason. They weren't just the population of the town, but it was time for, it was time for the Passover. Just a reminder what the Passover was. It was a celebration of when God saved Israel out of Egypt. The king of Egypt, Pharaoh, he wouldn't listen to God, so God sent plague after plague after plague. And finally, the last plague was the plague of the firstborn. And the people of Israel were told, if you take a lamb, a pure spotless lamb, sacrifice it and take its blood and put it on the doorpost and the threshold, that death would pass over their house. It wasn't because they were more righteous than their neighbors. It wasn't because they were on the right side of things or on the right side of history. No, it was the blood of the lamb that would cause the death to pass over them. And that is what everybody in Jerusalem is here for. They weren't just the normal population, but many, many visitors. You even had people from North Africa, like Simon of Cyrene, who was there in Jerusalem for the Passover. So we have crowds and we have crowds. 
It's been asked, you know, is this the same crowd? I think it's very likely. It's very much similar people. But I do know this. The first crowd is not more righteous than the second crowd because the first crowd is not there at the crucifixion. They've all scattered. The disciples, even the 12, had scattered. Peter himself denies Christ three times. Thank you so much, Rocky, for reminding us about that. Jesus compares Jerusalem to Nineveh in the passage above. How would he compare our town and our nation? Jesus talked about Jerusalem. He said that the judgment, the men of Nineveh will rise up and they will condemn this generation because now one greater than Jonah is here. How would he, how would he speak to America, our nation? Nowhere on the face of the earth are there more Bibles and more Bible preaching. There are so many who come to church and are very much like the crowd of disciples. When things are going, when things are going on and everybody likes Jesus, the crowd is big. When it's time for the cross, the crowd shrinks considerably. As we look into the crowd today, I want us to ask the question, do I follow Jesus because of someone else, or truly is it because I have decided? You know that song, I have decided to follow Jesus. It has an incredible history behind it. It's, a, it's the story of a Christian in India there was a bit of a revival that happened in India. And there was a counter-revival too that many of the leaders in India really felt, really felt threatened because people were turning away from Hinduism to follow this Jesus. So one particular town, the people, the chief and the, uh, the leaders, they come to this guy's house and they threaten him that if he, does not, if he does not repent of his repentance, then they will kill him and his family. This man's name... Last name was Sing. Um, the hymn comes from the last words of this martyr and his family when he, um, and then before he himself died. He said when they came to him, um, when they came to him, and they asked him to renounce, he says, um, I have decided to follow Jesus. Enraged at the refusal of the man, the chief ordered the archers to arrow down the two children as both Boys lay twitching on the floor. The chief asked, will you deny your faith? Will you, you, um, you have lost both your children. Will you lose your wife too? But the man replied, though no, though no one joins me, joins me, still I will follow. The chief was beside himself with fury and ordered his wife to be arrowed down as well. In a moment, the in the moment she joined her two children in death, now he asked for the last time, I will give you one more opportunity to deny your faith and live. In the face of death, the man said the, these final memorable lines, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. The crowd on the day of the triumphal entry, they didn't get it. They were expecting a savior, but not this savior. What would, God, what would Christ say about our own nation? Would on the judgment the men of Nineveh stand with this generation and condemn it because we have the words of the one who is greater than Jonah who is with us? Do I follow Jesus because of someone else? Or have I decided? Also, how often do I resemble the crowd? And finally, how can I be better? How can I better look like Jesus in both instances? I've taken both of these scriptures to compare and contrast because there's so many similarities between them. We have insiders in both instances. 
When it comes to the triumphal entry, we have the two disciples, but we have the other disciples as well, encouraging the crowd to bring the palm branches to shout, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And in the second one, we have the scribes and the chief priests who incite the crowd. So we have inciters in both instances. We also have the crowd in both instances. Two diametrically opposed ideas for both. One was praise, the other was death. And finally, we have the Savior. So let's go into this, the inciters. Verses 1 through 7 of chapter 21 and verse 20 of 21. Verses 1 through 7 of chapter 21. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at, and he will send them at once. That won't work for you today. Just let you know. You can't just take people's donkeys. Um, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full fowl, full of a beast of burden. Then the disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. Then they brought the donkey and the colt and put them on, and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. In both instances, in verse 20 now, uh, in verse 20 of chapter 27, now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd and asked for Barabbas, and to destroy Jesus. In both instances, we have people who stir things up. You find that behind most things, most movements, you have people who stir them up, even supposed grassroots movements. If you dig through the different things long enough, you will find that all of a sudden somebody's like, okay, and now somebody was here who was not part of the group who said, get them, or break it, or set it on fire, or whatever. You have somebody who incites what is going on. Once again, even when it comes to grassroots movements, there is someone looking to put what is going on on TV or something to that effect. In the case of the triumphal entry, we have Jesus' disciples who are stirring things up. You have the two Jesus sends to get the colt and the donkey and the rest to start the party. When it comes to Christ's trial, there are, there are elders and chief priests. We are called to stir one another on to good works, but we are also warned not to stir up division verses 1 through 3 and verse 20, when it comes to Christ's disciples, they are obeying the words of their rabbi. This is also to fulfill prophecy as described in verses 4 and 5. They have a purpose in this preparation. They are about to enter Jerusalem for the Passover. You can feel the excitement in the air. And they are the, they are the disciples of this miracle worker, this prophet, who is about to make a huge impact. He's the message. He is the one spoken of in the Old Testament, and he will save them from the Romans. In verse 20 of chapter 27, however, those leaders had something else in mind. They had a purpose all their own. They did not want to glorify Jesus, but they wanted to rip him down. Jesus came into Jerusalem, and he did the one thing that they couldn't abide. He took the crowd from them. You'll see this in the narrative Matthew writes, that they want to kill Jesus right away, but they're afraid of the crowd because the crowd is now following him instead of them. Major difference is Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't love the crowd's praise. He loves the crowd. The Pharisees, they love the praise of the crowd, but they do not love the individuals in the crowd. And the difference is 
monumental. Jesus lays down his life for the crowd, while the scribes and the chief priests look to lay down Jesus' life for the pleasure of the crowd. Verses 4 and 5, as we read, according, are according to prophecy. But chapter 27 is also by prophecy. Both are, both are orchestrated by the hand of God. Matthew 20, 18. See, speaking, Jesus speaking, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. We have a hard time with this. If God foresaw or predestined these events, then are the crowds and the chief priests responsible for their actions? Yes, yes, they are. You know why? Because we never ask the other way around. When it comes to the triumphal entry, do we ever ask, well, is it really good that they had the palm branches waving and were shouting Hosanna? I mean, it was prophesied just the same as Jesus being delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. Now, I know two things, that God is completely sovereign and we are completely responsible for every action we do and we can never blame it on anything else other than our own selves. Because God can use the evilness inside people's hearts towards his ends does not mean he causes that evilness to appear. That is on us. Gossip and evangelism. Verses 6 through 8, we see the disciples being we see the disciples being exact. Oh, oh thank you very much. Um, being exact to show how amazing Jesus is. In verses 10 and 11, the people of the city ask what, um, what is going on. They say, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. They are engaging in evangelism. So the disciples we see here, especially in Matthew and in Luke, where it talks about it's the disciples who bring the crowd. They are telling people about this great Jesus. Come see him. The king is coming into the town. They're engaging in evangelism in that they're talking about their own experience with Christ and that you should experience Christ as well. That's awesome. The, the chief priests, on the other hand, are engaging in gossip. It's someone like that in which they're telling somebody else's story and their part in it, except they're doing it in such a way to tear down and bring death instead of bringing life. Evangelism brings life. Come see the man who told me everything about my own life. That's what the woman said. Come see him. Gossip, on the other hand, looks to elevate us and rip somebody else down. Gossip is telling someone else's story and your take on it. Somewhat like evangelism is telling Jesus' story and how, and how that's changed our life. When it comes to gossip and evangelism, both think that they are right. Both are convinced that they are, but the aim of each is different. One is aimed at reconciliation, and the other is aimed at death. The chief priests and the elders, they convince the crowd. That's a great question. How does the crowd go from Hosanna in the highest to crucify him by the end of the week? So how did the chief priests uh, accomplish this? One is disillusionment. He wasn't the message they wanted. He wasn't going to free them. He wasn't going to free them from the tyrannical rule of the Romans. You know, there is something, for those of you who engage in mercy ministry or mercy um, ministries that help other people, you'll find rage like you've never seen before when you help somebody in a way they don't want to be helped, in a way they're not expecting to be helped. They have a certain way they want the help to come, and if you don't help them, they get very upset with you, but because you love them, you'll endure their anger and do that. So the first way they do this is through disillusionment, 
The second, we can look at the word Hosanna. Hosanna is a Hebrew word that literally means save me. When Jesus enters into Jerusalem and they're waving the palm branches, they're putting them on the ground and they are shouting Hosanna in the highest, they're literally saying, save us, save us, save us, save us. And what did they want? They wanted a Samson. They wanted a Gideon. They wanted somebody who would come in, organize things, and they were going to throw off the yoke of the Romans. And you know something? It wasn't a crazy idea. Some people are like, how could they possibly think they could do this? They had done it before in recent history. There is a bit of history that often gets ignored when it comes to Israel, and it's the Hasmonean dynasty. There was a bit of time between the rule of the Persians and the rule of the Romans in which the Israelites ruled themselves. Once again, it's called the Hasmonean dynasty. I'm not going to go into the deep history of that, but when Jesus comes in, they're thinking, here's another Judas Maccabeus, and it's on. Let's get ready to rumble. But here comes Jesus, and he's not on a white stallion. He's on a donkey and a fowl of a donkey, a colt. He's not, the, he's not the Savior. He doesn't save them the way they want to be saved. He was there to save them, not the way they were expecting. The insiders of Christ's execution capitalized on this and told them that he would destroy the temple in three days. Not only was he not going to save them from the Romans, he was all about the Romans, in, he was all about the Romans destroying them. This was the lies that was spoken at Christ's trial before he goes to Pilate. A certain point of view, the best lies have a bit of truth in them. Jesus did say, destroy this temple in three days, I will rebuild it. Of course, he's not talking about the actual temple. You can't rebuild a temple in three days. He's talking about his own body, the temple. And I don't think anybody was really confused on that. I think that they just tried to take it in the worst light they could as a weapon against him, which constantly happens today, right? You hear something in the media, you check it out for yourself, and you're like, that's not what the person was talking about at all. I mean, how did you get that out of this unless you were purposely trying to mislead me? In fact, most articles, their titles are so different from the actual content of it. It's amazing. They're just hoping you don't actually read it. It's from a certain point of view. The best lies have a little truth in them. Ask Satan. The devil, is the, the devil is in the details, and when they tried Jesus, they willfully presented Jesus' words out of context and in the worst light. Watch the advice you give. Church splits happen all the time. Sometimes it's a good thing. If the church isn't preaching God's word, then people shouldn't stay there. You say, again, if a church, even including this church, if I stop preaching God's word, you have no, you have no obligation to stay here. You are here because I hope, because you're, you're wanting to hear God's word. And I tremble before I get up to the lectern because I know that God will judge me more harshly than others because I presume to be a teacher. Sometimes it's a good thing. If the church isn't preaching God's word, people shouldn't stay there. But quite a lot of time, when it comes to church splits, it's the work of Satan. It's people being like the chief priests and the scribes, gossiping, presenting things in the worst light imaginable, they get other people angry, and they fan, they fan that, that flame of anger into rage. And soon people are raging at somebody in the church, and they never stop and think, this person's also made in the image of God. They're a brother and sister in the Lord. I've had the very 
unpleasurable um, position to be in when people are doing that kind of a thing. They're gossiping about the pastor, but they don't want to talk to the pastor. They're gossiping about somebody in the church, but they don't want to talk to the person in the church. And I have to be like, have you talked to them? No, they won't listen to me. I was like, have you tried talking with them? Well, no. And you know what happens probably about 99% of the time when somebody actually talks to somebody else? I completely misunderstood. I completely misunderstood. But you know, if you never actually talk with them, if you never actually try to understand, you get that anger in you. And more angry you get, the more stupid you get. And that's actually a scientific fact. Um, more angry you get, your IQ actually lowers. And you start seeing things through a very narrow lens. And all of a sudden you're shouting, crucify him. Oh, thank you, Becca. Got me some water here. Here's the second part in both of them is that there's a crowd. In verses 9 through 11 of chapter 21, and the crowds that went before him that followed him were shouting Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem. The whole city was stirred up, uh, was stirred, saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Galilee. Verses 21 through 23 of Matthew chapter 27 now. The governor said again to them, which of these two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said again, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. I saw the passion of the Christ once. And for me, I think once in my life is enough. I don't know if I could ever really endure that again. One part that, always, that I always thought was so moving that is always sticking out in my mind was there's this point where Jesus is going down the Villa Della Rosa, the way of suffering. He has his cross. He is going down the road. And they intersplice video of him in the triumphal entry. And it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's stirring. It cuts you to your very heart because you see there's such similarities between the two crowds who took the branches of a tree will now nail him to a tree. The, the fickleness of the crowd. One, one part that I thought was so moving is when Jesus is walking down the street with the cross. The film flashes back and forth from the triumphal entry to the Via Della Rosa. That's the crowd. They praise you one moment and the next moment they curse you. We see this today so quickly, it's, 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 hard, uh, it's hard not to get the hint. On Monday, somebody can be hailed as a hero for saving a puppy from a lion. Then all of a sudden, you have an army combing through his Twitter. And if he said something untoward when he was 15, now it's time to cancel him. So many, including Christians, will jump on both bandwagons. The crowd in chapter 27 is worked up. They want him dead, and they want him dead right now. Why? Because the instigators told them that Jesus told his disciples what, what Jesus would tell his disciples would happen. First John 16, 2. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think they're offering a service to God. The people who killed Jesus on that day, who shouted for his blood... And we always ask the question, who killed Jesus? Well, you and I killed Jesus because Jesus laid down his life and he didn't have to go to the cross. 
But within the passion narrative, you have the two groups that you find in all of the scriptures, Gentiles and Jews. That represents the entire world. You have the reigning Gentile power, the Roman Empire, and their, their designated representative, Pilate. And you have the Jews and their chief priests. All of humanity killed Christ. All of humanity shouted for the blood of the Savior. What is justice? The crowd in chapter 27, they are worked up because they believe justice is seeing this man crucified. If there is one word these last few years that has been misused in churches and in society at large, it's this one word. It is justice. And I've seen so many good Bible preachers this last few years massacre that word right there. They will go to, they will find the word in the scripture that says justice, and then they will go away from the scripture, and then they will define justice by the way the world defines justice. They'll go throughout all these things, but God has a lot to say about what justice is, exactly what justice is. It's interesting, you know, there's all this conversation. You know, one, one area of justice we never kind of talk about is when somebody um, gets into so much debt and they file bankruptcy and they don't pay their workers. God actually sees that as a matter of justice, that, you, that he sees the workers you haven't paid, that you got out of legally but not morally. There's so many areas of justice. We don't let God define justice. When we define justice, we put ourselves in God's place. That is what the people that day were doing. They believed it was justice for Christ to be crucified. Terry Pratchett said this, Always remember the crowd that applauds at your coronation is the same crowd that will applaud your beheading. People like a show. In verses 10 of chapter 21, the entire city is stirred up. They are excited. And you, you, can, you get the excitement in the air. Everyone's putting down these palm branches. They're shouting Hosanna. It's like, that, it's like that scene in Aladdin. You know, Prince Ali, Ali is he, Baba. It's kind of like that because people are excited. Here comes this king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Everybody is so excited. They don't get it though. And that's really the sad part. They're excited for a king, but not a king who truly comes in the name of the Lord. Verse 41 of the same chapter, as we go read further on, verse 41, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. So Jesus comes in, he accepts the praise. In fact, there are some Pharisees who say to him, um, make your disciples quiet them down. Um, they, are, they are blaspheming. And he says, if they quiet down, the very rocks would cry out. But Jesus understands the wider picture that they, they don't get it. Because he says this when he enters Jerusalem. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the day will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. He's, of course, talking about when Jerusalem will be completely destroyed in 70 AD. A number of the people I went to college with, people who studied to be pastors and missionaries and evangelists, people who I saw in chapel service raising their hands and weeping before the Lord, are not following the Lord today. 
There are many who are literal atheists. Well, they say they're atheists. I don't believe in such a thing. I think you suppress the truth and unrighteousness. I mean, these are people who are trained to be pastors. I mean, there are people who are trained, who are training to be pastors, who are now identifying as a different gender today and have rejected everything of the Lord. And it's, it's kind of like the thing that really, I mean, I think back on this, it's like, what didn't I see? Of course, I can't see into somebody's soul. They gave sermons and testimonies, and now they won't even say they believe there is a God. Because just because an outward sign of emotion is not the same as an inward change. They didn't get it. It seems like the people of the city and the large number of Christ's followers got it in verses 10 and 11, but they didn't. They were just following the rest of the crowd. In the 70s, there was the Jesus people. You know, long-haired hippies who liked Jesus. Pretty cool thing before my time. In the 80s, there was the PTL club. In the 90s, there was the Pensacola revival. In the early 2000s, the awakening of Christian music festivals. And now we have the ever-shrinking evangelical church in America that so many mourn. But I don't see it that way. I see that God is now revealing to us what the true church is. And narrow truly is the gate that many during those ages were just simply following the crowd with the palm branches because something's happening and it's exciting. Prince Ali, Ali is he. But now I know who this king is and now I feel differently because this king isn't my homeboy. This king hates the sin that I love. Crucify him. I think we are seeing what God has been seeing since forever is that the way truly is narrow. And that there are very many people who are in churches who are just coming because there is a crowd. People are just following the crowd, going to where the crowd is going. And as that crowd shrinks, they shrink away. I don't think we are seeing people lose their faith. We are just seeing what their faith was in. And here's the sad part about it, but the scripture makes this very clear that all of us were haters of God in our mind. And they just, they hate Jesus. They loved a Jesus that they had made in their mind, but they hate the true Christ. For a time, they thought they loved him, and they would weep at the altar, but really, it was just a Christ they had made in their own mind. He was the Jesus that was going to kill their enemies, give them prosperity, and make their troubles go away. They shouted, Hosanna, which is once again Hebrew for save me, but they didn't want the Savior. Number three, the Savior. For this, we're actually going to go to the triumphal entry in Luke chapter 19. Verses 39 and 39 and 40. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he said, I tell you, if these, if these were silent, the stones would cry out. Here's the thing about Christ is he knew. One thing that will change the way you read the Passion in the story of the Gospels, and you can read it in all four of the Gospels, is remembering that Jesus knew. He knew the crowd would gather and shout Hosanna, and he knew the crowd would gather and shout Crucify. Jesus knew he would be resurrected. Jesus knew and loved all of these that we are reading about today. Jesus knew and he still washed feet. That's something powerful. I, 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 posted, I posted a a tweet on my Facebook 
a number of years ago, and I do every Holy Week, and somebody's saying that when I think about if this was my last day on earth, my last night on earth, what would I do? Well, I'd go crazy. I would eat all the junk food. I would, I would hang out with friends. I'd play video games all night. I'd do all these things. And he said, today it occurred to me, Jesus knew and he washed feet. And I hate feet. So man, that gets to me. <laughs> I think they're gross. Jesus washed feet. He washed the feet of the very man who would then get up, go to his conspirators, kiss Jesus and hand him over to be crucified. Jesus knew. Jesus knew, and he still, he still comforted his disciples because he knew that they would not understand. He still promised the Holy Spirit. He still prayed for his disciples. He still prayed for all believers. He still paid the imperial tax. That is definitely one thing I would do if I knew I was going to be dying soon, is not pay taxes. He still warned, I mean, what are they going to do? Tax my corpse? But anyway, um, he still warned against false teaching. He still noticed a widow's offering. He still had Passover dinner with his disciples. He still drove out the money changers at the temple. He still taught at the temple. He still condemned the religious leaders. Because that is who he is, and he acts out of his nature. That is why we can, that's why we can trust that when God tells us he loves us, he means it, and he doesn't change his mind. God is not sorry for saving you, even if you mess up, because he does not change his mind. And when he tells us he loves us, what can separate us from that love? Neither height nor depth, neither things above nor things below, neither angels nor demons. No, nothing can separate us from the love of God because it is his very nature. In Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, God says something about himself. The Lord passed before him, speaking of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities, transgressions, and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Does that sound familiar in accordance with what we've been learning the past seven weeks? It's what Jonah said to God in chapter 4. He says, isn't this what I told you? For I knew you were a God. For I knew you were a God. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is how God described himself. Here's a little bit of history with that. Is that Israel, they had gone to the golden calf. They had rejected and then they came back and, God, and Moses is speaking with God and he's wondering, who are you going to send with us? And God tells him, I'm just going to send an angel. I'm paraphrasing, by the way. Read all of Exodus for all this. I'm paraphrasing. God tells him, I'm going to send an angel because if I go with you, I'm going to be tempted just to kill all of you. And Moses tells him, I'd rather die than not go with you. This is what this has all been about. It's getting, getting to be with you. Jonah mocked God with those words when God broke Jonah's pride and revealed to him that this slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness was not just for the Ninevites. It was not just for Israel, but it was for Jonah too. Jonah's anger at the idea that the Ninevites wouldn't face justice is mirrored by the crowd's misplaced and wrong idea of justice and their rage of Jesus at Jesus. 
It's also mirrored when we say we love God whom we have not seen, but hate our brother whom we have. This mirror isn't just for those outside of the face, but for those inside as well. We can let rage and self-serving rage, like virtue signaling, self-righteous judging, cause us to hate that brother or sister that we have seen. You know what's so sad is we see this in churches all the time. Somebody gets on about some minor doctrine, and now it's a crusade. And now they are attacking and attacking and attacking, and it won't stop because their anger has blinded them. We can't pride ourselves in what amazing, faithful men and women are, we are, but we can, praise our, we can praise our Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who keeps us close by his side. You may think you are beyond this today. You know, I'm preaching this. We have Palm Sunday every year. You wonder how much we are, you know, I wonder how much myself. Am I getting much out of this? Or am I like, well, yeah, Hosanna in the highest. You know, it's a nice little moment. But am I actually getting something from this that's changing my heart? We have to have a bit of humility when we see this. We may think we're beyond this. But you know who also thought he was beyond this? Peter the Apostle. He seemed to think so. so. He shouted that he would die with Christ. He even tried to kill a man who came, to, who came to take Jesus. But when Peter is alone, not with the crowd by him, not even with the other disciples, he denies Christ, not once, not twice, but thrice. Peter had even, Peter had even with the inspiration by God the Father, revealed that Christ is the Son of the living God. Josh Howerton writes, On the night of Jesus' arrest, Peter was willing to kill for Christ but not to die for him. Lesson, there's a type of counterfeit faithfulness that's willing to kill for Christ, but not willing to die for him. In humility, we have to see that it's Christ who holds us, not we who hold him. And that any faithfulness we have in the Lord is because the Holy Spirit ties us. When we start getting proud and we start thinking, these others, they'll deny you, but I never will. That is the time where God, I think, sometimes releases a bit of the grace away and lets us see on our own how faithful we, be, we can be to Christ. And so oftentimes, it's in the areas where we think we are being the most righteous, where we're being the most unrighteous. John Bevere wrote a book a number of years ago called The Bait of Satan. And I'm going to spoil it for you. The Bait of Satan is offense. We take offense. And John Bevere details in his book how many churches they face all these splits and all these trials and all these problems because we take offense at the most little things. And that's Satan's bait. Because once you bite onto that, he has you hooked. And now you, now you are confusing your own emotions with the will of God. And anybody who stands between these things is now our enemy that we rail and rage against. I would tell you today that is what the crowd had thought and they were wrong. Our anger, in our anger, we should not sin. We should not be quick in our anger. We should be quick to forgive. We should be abounding in steadfast love like our Father is. Worship team, if you'd come up at this time. In this mirror, we see, this, we see the crowd. We see the fickleness of the crowd. We see the crowd who is willing to say Hosanna is also willing to say crucify him. But we have great joy to know that God has made us alive in Jesus Christ. I pray today that you've gotten it, that you got that he's not here to get you money and prosperity, but he is here to save you in every way imaginable, to give you the best gifts.
we have to ask ourselves, are we here for the crowd or the cross? The crowd says, die for me. The crowd says, live for yourself. The crowd says, live for the applause. But the cross says, pick up your cross and follow him. We are to incite, but we incite one another on to good deeds and to greater affection for Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. We should be steady like Christ who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Our worship team is going to lead us in our final song for this morning. And I want us to remember, I hope this week is a time of meditation for you. Once again, I don't want to hear about anybody just like emptying your mind and repeating mantras. Um, but focus deeply on the passion story. What does this mean for me? We like to do what me and my brother would do as kids. We watch movies and we're like, I'm this guy, I'm this guy, I'm this guy. One time I heard a sermon about how we're Barabbas, but we're not Barabbas. Because Jesus doesn't choose to die for Barabbas. The crowd chooses Jesus to die instead of Barabbas. If we're anybody in this story, here's the really sad, scary part. We're the crowd who chooses the man of lawlessness over the man of righteousness. But as the song that Josh played earlier said, there was grace for them, there is grace for us. And for those of us who are alive in Christ, I pray it's each and every one of you. What joy that's unspeakable and full of glory. What joy that's unspeakable, full of glory, and that we can shout, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And we mean it, that he does not come for my agenda, but for his own agenda to be about his Father's business. And I want to be about his Father's business. I want to go into the community. I want to go into my friend groups, into my families, and shout, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. There is one who has come to save you. And he is here today, and if you would repent and put your faith in him, you can shout Hosanna, and he will. He will. Worship team, please lead us in our final song.